Living the Dream acknowledges the traditional owners of the land it is recorded on, especially the Jagera and Turrbal peoples, elders past, present and future, and their continuing struggles for justice and self-determination. Podcast. Living the Dream is an irregularly published anti-capitalist podcast from Brisbane. Hey, this is Dave here and you're about to hear a podcast I recorded a couple of days ago about transformations and changes going on at the global level of the world system of capitalism. But before we get into it, I've got to kind of make three corrections. So in the following uh, episode, I'm pretty sure that I get... The name of a journalist wrong. I think I call Ambrose Pritchard Evans, Ambrose Evans Pritchard. I also say US one time when I should have said EU, and I refer to $20 billion worth of tariffs when it's actually $200 billion worth of tariffs. Apart from those errors, um, enjoy the episode. Hi there, this is Dave here, and you're listening to Living the Dream. You can follow me on Twitter at With Sober Senses. And so today, what I really wanted to do was a pretty quick uh, follow-up on a previous episode that where I started to have a conversation or try to open a conversation about um, what's going on on kind of the level of the global political economy of capitalism and the world order, and particularly interested in the kind of US um, kind of fracturing or, or breaking away from the world order as we currently understand it. And after I did that, I thought, oh man, this, this is a really interesting topic. I, I think something's really transforming. I think something's really changing. I, I want to write about this. I want to do some more podcasts on that. But I was instantly kind of confronted with the difficulty of the topic, really, because it involved like um like two really difficult tasks one was coming to really grips with the kind of long historical organization of capitalism as a world system and the second was the theoretical understanding of that as well and the various debates and how that changed like oh man it's a really big project and some other things have come up and i kind of put to the side but in the last couple of weeks a number of events have happened um which I think are really evidence of this like fracturing in how the world system of capitalism functions. And it's kind of compelled me to go, we need to talk about this, we need to think about it now. And particularly what's kind of driving me is I can't really see um, a lot of other analysis that's happening in Australia about this, or even kind of commentary. And of course, you know, this is just talking to friends, looking on social media, looking at left media. I'm not really seeing much of that going on. I think this is really, really important. That's um, really a problem if, if we're not doing that because I guess like what's you know one of the points of radical theory like having an analysis is the ability to kind of uh, attempt to explain the world so those of us that all live in it and want to attempt to transform it can work out what we need to do and those of us that uh, I guess like see ourselves on the left I guess part of one of our tasks is kind of developing an understanding it and then popularizing it and if we're not doing this then in moments of crisis um, other voices come in and those other voices point in different directions often reactionary directions and I think we really need to kind of start this process of going well what's going on and so that's what's kind of driving me here also i think like um whenever when i look around whenever whenever people are kind of talking about the the world system they often use just a really crappy concept of imperialism and it's normally just some kind of anti-americanism or there's just a lot of kind of you know really bargain basement like anti-trumpism and like none of this is is kind of good enough but it's difficult stuff, you know, like, and w- what's so difficult about it? I guess, like, 
one of the things I've been trying to grasp is a starting point is, you know, capitalism is a system where everything is commodified, therefore turned into um, something that is represented with a value, you know, you know in, has a price tag on it. And capitalism as a mode of production is all about taking money um, and transforming that into more money endlessly. But the processes of actually doing that take place in space and they take place in time. For a bunch of money to become capital, it has to say, I don't know, you know, like rent a warehouse, rent a factory, buy machinery, hire labourers, produce a commodity and then sell that. And that all takes place in space and time. And the history of capitalism has always been as a world system. You know, these processes of the circulation of capital and commodity and labour has always happened on a really big terrain. And therefore, it's always, there needs to have always been an ordering of that world system, an ability to regulate. Um, so these flows function because capital has to you know, take commodities and has to move it a long distance and it wants to be sure that its commodities will be sold and not stolen and it has to be able to move money over great de deta uh, distances as well. And so it needs a kind of geographical framework. But I think what I mentioned about last time, one of the contradictions is that whilst capitalism is a world system, historically it's always really been organised by nation states. And... It's the question of how those various different nation states and the processes of capital fit in to some kind of order which allows the regulation and the flow of capital to actually function. And I guess the other thing that's important here is that it's, you know, whilst you could say that capitalism as a mode of production transform, you know, kind of smooths the world in some ways by anything to be intelligible within capital, it has to take on a price tag. It, these movements and these processes also create incredible geographical inequalities about where, say, wealth is created and where it is taken from. And these are increasingly complex and difficult to understand, or maybe not increasingly, maybe they've always been really complex and difficult to understand. Now, in our heads, we might have a mental map that wants to see things as first world, third world, core, periphery, north, south. And that's good and that's really useful, but and has a historical moment where that really says something. But also, you know, you can go to Shanghai and find incredible wealth and you can go to the United States and find incredible poverty. So these geograph ge geographies are kind of complex. And also I think, you know, it's ridden by contesting political forces. There is, you know, the class conflict that goes on within the capitalist mode of production. There are different blocks of capitalists that fight with each other. There are different states pushing for supremacy, you know, and other series of actors that make this kind of difficult picture to kind of grab. All right, so that's some of the kind of, you know, theoretical kind of challenges that we face in doing this. Then what's the kind of specific events that have um, kind of compelled me to, to try to make a comment about one of them? Well, I think the first of it is the split at the G7. So this was, I guess, a couple of weeks ago now when um, Donald Trump, the President of the United States, left the G7 meeting early and uh, refused to sign the communique. So, you know, the G7, sometimes it's the G8, you know, Russia was kicked out a couple of years ago, is, I guess, an informal grouping of the world's largest and most important economies that come together and... Um, 
try to coordinate a united approach as states for the management of capital on a global level and assert their own interests, right? So it's an incredibly important framework and it fits in, I guess, with a mesh of other supranational organisations. You know, there's liaisons with the IMF, the World Bank, the WTO, the G20, a bigger organisation. It's one of the frameworks where the kind of problems of the global coordination of capital is organised. If you read someone like... Um, Vijay Prashad, his book, The Poorer Nations, he talks about, now if you're going to use the term neoliberalism, that's up to you, I don't know what I really think about it these days, but um, you know what we might want to call neoliberalism, part of that emerges out of you know, G7 meetings in the, in the 1970s, in the mid-70s. So this is you know, facing a crisis of capital, various states get together to plan what they can do. So that's really huge. And so why, why did kind of the Trump walk away from it. Well, on one hand, there was a conflict, and there's different sides to this story, but there's a conflict with Canada over NAFTA, so that's the North American Free Trade Agreement. That's one of the kind of ongoing, most important ideologically kind of free trade agreements in the world. Uh, Trump has argued that there should be a sunset clause on it, or a grandfather clause on it, so um, I've forgotten which is the right one, but basically every five years its conditions should be negotiated. And also argued that he was going to impose tariffs on other G7 um, members. And when the Canadian government, so Trudeau, said, no, that's fucked, we're not going to do that. And Trudeau's another really interesting fish, right? Everyone likes to go around and clap about how wonderful he is, but in really, Trudeauism is like global Clintonism, you know, the emergence of progressive sheen with neoliberal orthodoxy, right? And so there's this split that's happening at that level. That's incredible. The United States, the centre state of the global order, pulling away and saying, actually, you know, no, we're not going to sign a joint communique because we are asserting the specific interests of the United States as a state and the interests of capital in America. Mind-blowing, right? Also, what else is happening is, like, we've had two announcements at the end, about um, the end of quantitative easing. Okay, what's all this about? So, one of the reactions to the global financial crisis was that central banks around the world took up what is called QE, quantitative easing, um, or unorthodox monetary policy, basically to stop the global economy imploding. It was one of the strategies that came up. What has it basically been? It's meant that central banks have either attempted to set interest rates really low and or have a program of buying financial assets. Now, this can be quite arcane and quite complicated, and I don't know if I really understand a lot of the details, but, you know, we live in a world where money is fiat credit money. So money doesn't have any kind of value these days because it's attached to a commodity and it really takes its existence because banks lend money to people and in that lending create um, the majority of money that we use. But banks also, when they lend money, they then have you know uh, liabilities and they have to borrow money themselves. And central banks work to, to set the interest rates that they lend to banks with, or sometimes banks lend to other banks with, as an attempt to set interest rates across the system as a whole. So how much it costs to uh, borrow money. And for a long time since the end of the 1970s, 
it's basically the approach of central banks was what they were worried about was inflation. So they were worried that when economic activity was growing too much, there'd be kind of too much money out there and prices would start to inflate and this would distort the capitalist economy. And when things were going down, they're worried about that, you know, the economy's not going enough, so they want to kind of make borrowing cheaper so people will stimulate the economy. So th that was their aim, right? You know, things going too good or push up interest rates, try to slow down the economy, things not going well enough, push interest rates down, try to speed up the economy. And so this is the idea that you can kind of, you know, use central banks as, as can attempt to um, influence how much it costs to borrow money is either to stimulate or put a break on the economy. With the global financial crisis, they kind of took the option of stimulation to an incredible level, right? So what we've seen is, is years of central banks setting interest rates basically so low money is, is free and, you know, buying financial assets. So this is central banks stepping into the market buying financial assets in an attempt to keep the value of assets up. So they've kind of produced this um, kind of huge injection of cash into the global economy. And one of the things this has led to is a huge explosion in debt. So, you know, the whole fucking shit didn't hit the fan, the ship didn't fall apart, but there's been this huge debt bubble driven and maintained um, by quantitative easing. And I would say below this is because there's a deeper structural crisis of capitalism, right? Like we're in a situation of over-accumulation where there is so much capital and the overall general tendency for profit rates to decline means that without this, the world is saturated in capital, it's not profitable enough and the whole thing would fall apart. What's going on? Well, the US has indicated that it is ending quantitative easing and it will raise interest rates on a planned schedule. And specifically, that it doesn't care about the impacts it might have on the rest of the global market. So basically, the argument runs something, you know, the thinking around something like this, that as the US begins to, um, and what are, first of all, why do they want to do this? Well, Trump's policy has been basically to cut taxes for capital, but to increase debt-led um, Pay debt finance spending so it's kind of supercharging the economy in this like very small window of a viable strategy where so the state is going to take on more debt because it's spending more but it's also taking on less capital from businesses to pay that off debt to kind of charge the economy up and you know that the the u.s economy is is growing relatively rapidly unemployment is relatively low there's i think for a window of time for capitalists this strategy is working not that it's like necessarily leading to wages growth or or anything like that but the danger then is as it kind of grows this could lead to inflation inflation you know, is the thing that the, um, the, the planners for capital are worried about and they're worried it's going to overheat the economy. So if they can raise interest rates, what this will mean is this might put a break on the economy and hold inflation down. But as this happens, and therefore like the value of the US dollar rises, this creates a problem for all the other uh, countries in the world and all the non-US corporations who are deeply in debt. Now, they might have to pay their debts in US dollars um, or whatever, so they, they, they need that. But as the US dollar increases relative to their incomes and to the, to the money that they have, then it actually becomes more expensive for those states and those companies um, to pay their debts. And this then like f creates the possibility of massive default, right? These companies, com countries and companies being swallowed by their debts. And what the US has signaled is they don't care about this impact.
because previously it's already created a problem. And I guess the other thing that's important to kind of grab with um, global economies as well, and particularly finance markets, it's it's not just the impact that's the that's the issue. It's the idea that there's going to be an impact. You know, so um, if there's a situation where you know the financial markets think in their kind of mimetic herd-like behaviour that X country is going to hit an an issue at some time in the future, then they will act like it is already hitting that issue and they'll start selling off the currency, selling off the assets. So it can often produce that effect. So that's massive that the US is going, okay, we're going to look at our own financial stability here, more important than the impacts it might have on the rest of the world. And secondly, the European Union, the European Central Bank, has identified by the end of the year it's going to end quantitative easing as well. Now, what's this about? The, the very, um, I think it's a really great um, bourgeois economist and reporter, Ambrose um, Pritchard-Evans, has an article where basically says, well, you know, the European economy is not growing. It's actually in a really difficult situation. But what this is attempting to do is to preemptively punish the right-wing populist government of Italy. So that's the um, five-star movement, the League government, that apart from having a whole bunch of reactionary and racist policies, also wants to engage in Keynesian-style financial stimulus. And what the, um, the ECB is doing is preempting that by pulling back, saying we're going to pull back the money supply so Italy can't do that, potentially forcing the contradictions even further crazy same time last week um, whenever you know i'm recording this on the 20th june last week the united states announced that it was going to impose 50 billion dollars worth of tariffs on china in relation to industries that it believes were involved in ip theft of u.s intellectual property and it's already discussing at the moment a further 20 billion dollars worth of tariffs on chinese industries the chinese responding by saying look we're going to counter-attack that's some big events going on central body of... um, Also, the other thing to point out as well is that Japan is not ending quantitative easing. easing. And I don't think um, the the English central bank is planning to either. So big events. One of the central bodies of organising the coherence of the global order, so that's the G7, sometimes the G8, but G7 at the moment, there's a fracture, right, where the most important state in the world breaks from what else is going on. We then have splits and the ending of um, of quantitative easing. One reason, because again, the United States as a state is prioritising its own state over the health of the global economy. And secondly, the European Union because of its internal contradictions and more evidence of a looming trade war. What's it, what's it all about? Like, why is this happening? You know, for me, I think this is uh, the continual playing out of the reverberations of the mire of crisis that the world system is currently in. That, you know, the almost 10 years since the global financial crisis has been held off by this vast accumulation of debt, but, you know, there has not been a sufficient level of growth. The the increase in debt itself is now as a looming issue. And so the different factions of capital are kind of dealing with the contradictions that are emerging um, because of this. And though those moves themselves will create reverberations in how um, those deep crisis tendencies manifest themselves. I think this is important to start talking about now because the effects of these might emerge at any time. Um, 
it's big stuff, right? So that's just what I wanted to kind of uh, comment on and, and, and think about now. Like, I also really think that we need to begin to move away from thinking about what's going on is somehow just the kind of um, stupidity of Trump. We need to not lionise Trudeauism, which is you know, global Clintonism. I think we've got to wonder if um, imperialism as a concept effectively describes what's going on in the world system. And I think for those of us located in Australia, like, you know, think about what does this mean? You know, so um, the Australian, the Australian government, the, the capitalism in Australia has largely benefit, benefited from, um, you know, stimulus in the form of from the Chinese government basically where uh, you know we weren't impacted by we didn't really go have the impacts of the global financial crisis and this kind of long recession afterwards because Chinese stimulus has um, you know kept up the price of commodities and mining boom happened and even now both federal and state budgets have been boosted by the increase in in the prices for for export commodities um, but at the same time you know there's growing growing debt personal debt um, considerable government debt as well corporate debt um, that's kind of filled the gap so there's this incredibly fragile situation that's going on um, China, of course, and I should have commented on this before, is attempting its own refigurings of the global economy, the One Belt, One Road infrastructure project um, across the Asias, and I think potentially into across Asia and into Africa as well, into into Eurasia. The same time the G7 was meeting. Um, uh, China, Russia and some other kind of uh, Eurasian states got together to, to meet as well. This is another block in the global order. So it means I think we've got to understand um, that these fractures are emerging, expressing um, both deeper tendencies within the world system itself and also uh, the product of the contradictions playing out as the different factors are pushing against each other. And I think we should always be concerned about the fact that, you know, this can get a bit shooty at some point too. There are already proxy military conflicts around the globe too. If that's what's going on, I'd like to hear your thoughts on it. I'd like to um, have more of a discussion about how we can think about it and how we can theorise it. How useful is the concept of imperialism in this age? You know, how can we begin to kind of popularise and spread this kind of analysis and understanding um, in a country like Australia? Thanks for listening. I hope you found that useful. Uh, you can get at me on Twitter at With Sober Senses. You are listening to Living the Dream. Enjoy the rest of your day. I
birds The ring of fire The ring of fire The ring of fire Burns, 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 the ring of fire. 